welcome to Sources, Kane Academy's podcast on history and culture. I'm Andrew Sorneman, your host. In this episode, we discuss an important but challenging topic. How should we live in the modern world? I think the most would agree that it's become increasingly difficult to find our bearings. Important things we used to count on, like religion and academic life, have significantly weakened. So where do we turn? Joining me for the interview is David Walsh, Professor of Politics at the Catholic University of America. He is one of the most innovative and penetrating thinkers in our country today. Over the last four decades, he's published a body of work that probes the leading thinkers and artists of recent centuries. With great confidence in our ability to find our way together, David Walsh's work offers that rare vision into the genuine good of the modern world, and it holds out to us reason for hope. I conducted the interview from Kane Academy's headquarters in Falls Church, Virginia. Professor Walsh joined me from his home in Chesapeake, Maryland. This is part one of a two-part interview. I hope you enjoy it. Professor David Walsh, thanks so much for taking some time to spend with me here at Kane Academy and our podcast network. Thanks very much, Andrew, for the the great invitation. It's always a pleasure to talk to to you and uh, share our uh, common interests and ideas. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, All of us on our team and all of our clients, uh, most of whom were teachers, love students and they love teaching. And we're very excited about talking to you today because we were hoping you could share your thoughts about your own love for each, for students and for teaching. We'd very much appreciate hearing your mind on the calling we have answered and are trying to encourage in one another as teachers. Let's start here with David Walsh, the student. So where were you educated? All right. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure how far back you want to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you're the... It's, I, remember, I was interested in finding out about things and studying things, so yes. Uh, <laughs> but, you know... Uh, well, well, you were raised in Ireland, is that right? I, yes, I, I, I was born in, in uh, County Tipperary, and um, uh, we moved to Dublin, grew up in the Dublin area, um, and also had a little bit in the west of Ireland. Uh, so, you know... Um, uh, I um, I was 24 years of age when I came to the United States. I see. So up to that point, um, I um, you know, lived a typical life of, yeah. <laughs> of an. So, in in uh, as a schoolboy, did you have uh, what kind of schools did you attend? Were they parochial or uh, public schools? Uh, they were publics, and uh, no, they were a mixture. Um, we lived down in in the west of Ireland when I was, you know, from about uh, five five on to about eleven. Then I attended the local, what was called national school, better mm-hmm. public school. But of course, uh, you know, they're all Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, Catholic and Protestant schools were both public schools. So there was no distinction. Um, the interesting thing about that school was that it was a two uh, a two room school, oh. uh, two teachers. Each had four <laughs> grades in the classroom. This was the one in, in the western end of, of uh, Ireland, or the one in Dublin. No, no, in Ireland, in the west, west on, over on the western coast of okay. Ireland, uh, over in County Sligo, okay. the Yates country there. Oh, uh, but uh, what was very interesting about that was that, you know, you're in a, in a classroom of four grades, and so the teacher is teaching one of the other grades while you're listening on to what's happening, you know. Yeah. So it was fascinating. You could learn a lot more that way, I thought. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Did, did you have any exemplary teachers growing up, any, anything, anyone that stands out? 
Uh, yes, well then, uh, when we moved back up to Dublin, I, I went to um, uh, a school run by the Christian Brothers, and that was that was private. And uh, some of those uh, teachers were really outstanding, especially the Christian Brothers. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, one of the, that was always uh, a tricky thing to find people who could really inspire students, and some of them were really, you know, excellent excellent men who lived out their calling. And that I think that meant a huge thing. Yeah. Yeah, and then, uh, so you came here at the age of 24. Uh, does that mean yeah. you did some university studies in Ireland first and then came yeah. here? Yeah. I went to University College Dublin um, and did a bachelor's degree in philosophy mm-hmm. and a master's degree there. Oh, uh-huh, very good. Yeah. yeah. And it was while I was there that I met Eric Vogelin. Oh. Came on a, he came over um, <clears throat> to look at some Neolithic um, uh, passage graves, stone, stone uh, not Stonehenge, but uh, Newgrange, the most famous one there. Uh-huh. So he had a nice little time uh, bringing him around and showing him things and getting to know him. And yeah. after that, to, um, to, to do a, a master's thesis on his work. Did, did you meet him because he was uh, visiting the university, or, or how did that come about? He, he was visiting uh, one of my... Uh, Friends who was a junior faculty member at the university at that time, and he had arranged it, and so we we got to know one another, and uh, you know that was a that was a very impressive. You know, it's not every day that that uh, um, a recent graduate, as I was at that time, gets to meet a world class philosopher. Uh, oh so gosh, that was, yeah, that was nice. So yeah. he he was one of the titans of the of the last century. Yeah, just amazing. Yeah. Uh, now, in the back of my memory, and it, and it might be a false memory, I, I just remember hearing a story one time about your driving uh, Eric Vogelin around Ireland uh, and it, it was this the occasion and this is that true occasion, yeah we see nobody had cars <laughs> and um, uh, uh, the Vogelins were you know were not people who uh, rented cars and drove around themselves and very few and even my friend uh, Father Brendan Purcell who was the faculty member oh, yeah. he didn't have a car either all he had was a 50cc Honda motorbike <laughs> but I was able to borrow my father's car oh and that gave me independence you know yeah. so I could I could show him around yeah, yeah. that's great I think I think Mrs. Vogan was a little perturbed by the whole experience of small roads tearing around in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. And is it now? Um Eric Vogelin loved to smoke. He smoked cigars a lot. So did yeah. did he smoke in that drive? <laughs> um, I think he probably did. Uh-huh. But you know, um, in, in the um, uh, in, in 1970, 71, 72, people weren't paying much attention. To that. No, no, everybody smoked. Yeah, yeah. I just always remember seeing pictures of him with a couple of little cigars tucked in his uh, jacket pocket. Yeah, so, I think he probably smoked when we were outside. Yeah, yeah. And then you came to the United States, and uh, you did your uh, doctorate at the University of Virginia, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Dante Germino, who was also a Vogelin aficionado at the time, uh, um, made it possible for me to go there. And again, I kept in touch with Vogelin. He came and visited uh, UVA during those years. So um, we had a good chance to, to, uh, to talk about things. What a... What a wonderful um, and rich opportunity as a young man to to have uh, been able to know and to uh, to uh, befriend uh, such a yeah. wonderful, huge, huge person in, in uh, our culture. So you, how wonderful that is! How grateful you must be. Uh, 
As a scholar, David, uh, much of your work has been an attempt to get inside the modern box and work through the difficulties of living in the modern world. And, you know, I think everyone in the audience will say, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to be a, a modern person. Uh, it's hard because um, the culture has lost a lot because we forget things. We've forgotten our history. We've Some of the things that give us our bearings um, have weakened. So, you know, religion is weaker. Family life is weaker. Uh, our sense of, of place has weakened a lot. Um, not everyone embraces your approach. That is, not everybody approaches the modern world sympathetically and, uh, you know, towards modern writers, towards modern art. And you have a very unusual mind, at least to my eye, and, and I wanted to know how you came to that liberal habit of mind. What is it in the modern works, expository and imaginative and, and all the great works of art, that caught your interest and focus? Um, well, first of all, you know, having um, a sort of a sympathetic approach to things we read, um, I don't think is a specifically modern thing. I think that's part of uh, the responsibility of any reader. I remember uh, being in a meeting with Joseph Cropsey one time, and he said, when I take up a book, I, I think my responsibility is to be on the side of the author. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that, that's a good formulation of it. Yes, uh, your responsibility is to understand it as the author did, as much as you can, you know. And so when you get into the mind of, of someone else, you begin to see see things from their point of view. And you don't begin from the notion that, well, we... We have to disagree. We have to have a different uh, a divergence or anything else. I mean, you may end up disagreeing, and you may end up being quite critical. But <clears throat> the only, I think, the only fair criticism is from a, a, um, a position of understanding, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what I've tried to do. Now, um, the big difficulty is that uh, when you start doing that you discover that not everybody else <laughs> has quite the same sympathies. Yeah. And that people very often make up their minds in advance. You know, you, 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 see, you hear about a, a figure or a thinker or a work of art and, and you, you get the sense that, oh, nobody, nobody, nobody regards that as really very important or significant or worth, worth investing your time in. And so it's, it's very easy just to take your cues from what the rest of the world is doing. Mm-hmm. And so gradually uh, you have to realize that, no, it's your responsibility to, to get out there and understand what's going on. And uh, when you do that, then you, you do begin to have a more sympathetic approach. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's really all it is. No more than that. Yeah. It, it seems to me there's a, um, a, a wide... A widely held attitude towards uh, modernity that, uh, say, in, in America or in, the, in Europe, there's a particular uh, disregard for uh, some of our liberal origins. And uh, there, there might be an agreed-upon acceptance of our classical origins and maybe our medieval origins, but not so much the liberal. You know, that, that modern uh, sensibility is oftentimes considered uh, or maybe summed up in a way that, poof, you know, you just reject it, you dismiss it out of hand, and um, uh, so it seems to, to my eye, uh, in the in the, I've only read three of your books, but in in all three of them, you take uh, the liberal uh, sources, you take the the modern writers very seriously. So in the spirit that, that you uh, cited there in Joseph Cropsey, um, 
so that's what I meant when I said you, you seem sympathetic. And I, you know, I, I love that s- sympathy, and I, I, I agree. And I, I try to encourage my fellow teachers to always be sympathetic to any source. But it's the modern ones that seem to be such a difficulty today for, for a lot of us who, who teach in, say, uh, classical schools or a uh, you know, more traditional liberal arts program. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, that, that we all take our cues from the surroundings that we're in and uh, the kind of uh, programs, institutions, uh, and all of that that, we, that we're a part of. Um, you know, it's the same in the church. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's also, um, you know, kind of a, a tendency to pass judgment. Uh, and then when you pass judgment, then you move on and you, you, you don't need to re- return and try and re-examine and even examine your, your own sense of, of things. So that, that's always a danger. All of us, all of us have that. Now, um, obviously, uh, we all go through life with a, 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 a way of understanding, organizing the world as a whole. Uh, because we can't really, you know, examine everything from the beginning. Uh, we can't make our own independent uh, judgments and assessments of everything. So we ha- we trust what people have said to us, and uh, you know, we we think, oh yeah, we'll go along with that, uh, unless you have some good reason to 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 return and and reexamine it. Um, in my own case, I must admit that I began um, with a much more negative assessment of modernity. And uh, partly that was the result of my, um, of the influence of Eric Vogelin, partly. I don't think it was, but, but certainly it's, it's a feature of people who come under the, uh, the influence of, of that group of emigre political philosophers who came to America uh, during the time this, and after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leo Strauss, um, uh, Eric Vogelin, um, even Jacques Maritain to a certain extent is in that, that, that group. Um, you know, so um, Hannah Arendt, you know, and you, see anybody who came through the totalitarian nightmare of the yeah. world begins to think, oh, that's the essence of the modern world. The modern world, whatever progress meant, it meant that it ended in this catastrophe. Hmm. So there's a huge sense that, well, we should dismiss it out of hand. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a, uh, uh, that, that's a compelling enough uh, worldview. Uh, but I don't think that was, that was necessarily the final word on the final judgment of this uh, emigre group of political theorists. Um, I think that gradually they came to think, well, no, we have to be more discerning, more nuanced, and think, th- think about what is good, what's of value, what can we, what can we uh, build upon? When you really begin to ask that question, well, if we, if we do live in a world of fragmentation and disintegration, then we have to pick up the pieces. Uh, we have to find a way of putting meaning together. Now, yes, that, that can mean going back to the classical uh, age, uh, Greece, Rome, uh, uh, the Hebrew scriptures and Christianity, uh, and drawing from all of that, as well as, the, as well as the great spiritual traditions, the world religions are all part of, of that other pre-modern era. And uh, you know, uh, that's certainly one of the ways of going about it, and that's an important, that's a very a fundamentally necessary step. But if you're going to reconnect to the modern world, 
then you have to understand that world too. Uh, and that's really kind of uh, been the focus of my work, to think about how you can make uh, the wisdom of the ages contemporary. Uh, not just leave it in the past. And this has always been the big, and that's the great thing about uh, the, the return of classical schools, because that's in essence um, an effort to make the past live again. Mm -hmm. and that's a modern project. That's not, a, that's not an ancient project. Yeah. That's a, that's a fresh way to, to describe uh, the role of a classical school. Yeah. It, it does seem to me that you push the envelope uh, on this in the sense that, um, I, so I don't want to misquote you, but I, I remember a line that went something like this, that it's imperative that we think through the logic of the of the modern predicament or the modern experience, I'm not quite I don't quite remember the phrase you use, but there's a sense in which you get inside the mess, and it's and one one way you just put it is that you pick up the pieces, but it seems to me another thing that you do is that there are in a sense. Uh, uh, kind of broken modern writers and broken modern uh, societies that, that you uh, discover afresh uh, their humanity and uh, find something there that's actually, it's not just a residue of something from the past, but it's inherently good. It, or, or I should say it's, it's good unto itself. It's not just a, a reference or a, it's not just something that stands in reference to the old, but it's, it's like everything that's good, all new. Is that a fair way to say things? Um, yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good way of, of, of putting it and a good way of putting the question. Um, the, um, uh, you know, uh, the modern world uh, uh, itself is connected with that classical and Christian past. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in many ways, uh, the modern world arises with the collapse of medieval Christendom. Um, it's not just that it pops up out of nowhere. It arises out of. I mean, one of the one 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 of the quotations I I, I really like is that is one from John Paul II, where he says uh, the crisis of the, the crisis of the modern world is really the crisis of the Christian world, uh, and that Christians therefore have uh, a huge responsibility to address it uh, and to understand it from within. Uh, it's not just um, antagonistic uh, to uh, to faith or to Christianity. Uh, it's um, in some ways a cry for it. Hmm. Uh, even Marx has that formulation: the cry of the oppressed creature. Uh, well, that's where we reconnect. Uh, you know, that's it, 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 even something as perverse as Marxism was, uh, with all of the disaster that led that led to it. Uh, in some ways, that's a fundamental cry for uh, what uh, the Christian world sought to provide and perhaps never provided fully enough. Uh, so we're, we're still, we're back with the same perennial struggle uh, as the Christian community or the faith community or uh, the classical world uh, sought, to, sought to address. How to bring about that fulfillment of human life. Mm -hmm. And so, the, so if, if we start with the crisis of the Christian world, yeah. Then, uh, do you and John Paul II have in mind uh, the the great divide between you know Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox? Do you, do you have in mind the the collapse, say, of um, of a more integrated Christian society, or what, what's the crisis that you have in mind? Ah, uh, the crisis. Um, 
The crisis is um, to imagine that you can build um, heaven on earth. And I think that that's, that's, that's the modern project. Uh, and you could say that that's a misdirection of the Christian longing. Uh, and, a, and a misunderstanding of it that really only Christianity can answer. Uh, the modern world uh, essentially gets into this nightmare of um, uh, a uh, uh, totalitarian effort to transform human nature on a mass scale uh, and all of the violence and destruction that that brings about um, because it misconceives uh, the project uh, on which on which it's um, uh, engaged and and also in a sense it doesn't find the answer from within the church it doesn't find the answer within the Christian community so in a sense it's a failure of the Christian community itself also uh, it's not just that the modern world fails it's also uh, the Christian, the world, the world of believers bear a responsibility and have to um, uh, lend a hand in the whole thing. So that's kind of yeah. um, uh, that's kind of the, 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 the sort of broad picture of uh, what I've um, sought to do over over my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, deal with that. Now, uh, within that, you're right that uh, I do end up. Um, uh, treating thinkers that um, would normally dismissed be dismissed with a bit more seriousness mm-hmm. and a bit more sympathy than um, you would expect. So, for instance, um, even um, uh, Vogelin and Leo Strauss, uh, they you know had shared a certain they had a shared shared background on things, but one th- and they had a lot of disagreements. But the one thing they disagreed about, they agreed fully about, was that. Um, John Locke was uh, the least helpful thinker over the last 500 years. <laughs> and the, the greatest piece of dung on the planet, I think, was technically what they, <laughs> how oh they boy. formulated this. <laughs> and that's a little, that, that, and uh, you know, that's a, that's a commonplace uh, that Locke is, a, is regarded as a superficial thinker who sets up a regime in which uh, individual rights and the demands of uh, self-centered individuals, you know, dominates politics, and there's no way of bringing that back together under a regime of the common good. Um, I think that that's a fundamental misreading of, of Locke, and it's a fundamental misreading of the liberal political tradition that, in essence, he inspires. He's not the only one, but he's certainly a, a, a pivotal moment in, in its development. And basically, um, one of the problems that I have with the, with the sort of standard reading of Locke as the beginning of the, the downfall of Western civilization and, the, and of, and of, the, and of the, the eventual disintegration of modern civilization is that it doesn't explain how we've managed to survive and persevere even in face of the catastrophes that have, that, 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 that have arisen. Um, and I particularly um, find it uh, problematic that the whole American political tradition, uh, which is very much inspired by Locke, the Declaration of Independence is Lockean in, all, in, in many of its most important formulations, uh, that all men are created equal and so on, uh, govern, government for the uh, 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 life, liberty, in the pursuit of happiness. These are Lockean formulations, uh, and uh, uh, the restraints on government, limited government, the right to revolution, all of that. All of that comes directly out of Locke. 
and, and it creates a viable constitutional regime that's the oldest modern constitution uh, in the world. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't think that's a pure accident. It turns out that indeed there's much more to um, the, this liberal political form, liberal democratic form. Let's call it liberal democracy. Uh, uh, you know, the term liberal has undergone a lot of a lot of changes over the, the years, a lot of modifications, and, I, and I'm using it here in a very sort of classical sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, but liberal democratic form, but that has a that has a durability and a resilience that has managed to um, surprise its critics and um, you know outlast its opponents. Mm -hmm. And in uh, in a nutshell, what what are the strengths of that liberal tradition that have enabled that survival? I think uh, the basic strength is that it is structured by. Uh, a moral it, it's 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 location within a moral universe in which uh, morality is grounded in our obligations to God and to one another, uh, and that it is contrary to a, a, a popular misperception. It's not about the pursuit of self-interest. Uh, it's it's about uh, the. Um, uh, support uh, and, and preservation of uh, a common uh, good or a common framework between human beings who mutually re who recognize one another as mutually uh, deserving of rights and dignity, uh, and that uh, you know a, a, the language of rights or rights talk, as it's referred to, is really a language in which. Um, when people enter into a conversation, they have to begin with that presupposition that the uh, the other person has rights as I have rights, and uh, the other person has uh, an enduring value uh, and an infinite worth, just as I expect to be regarded in that way. So it, it's the language of mutuality, the language of uh, personal rec interpersonal recognition. Uh, rights, are, you could say, arises out of that. Now, obviously, uh, the whole notion of, of, of inalienable rights uh, is uh, fundamentally rooted in the idea that uh, each of us is loved by the transcendent God. God was beyond all things and creates us in his image, who sends us on to redeem us and all of that. Uh, but it, it doesn't have to be um, articulated in theological language. It can be, that can be implicit within it. Um. So that's uh, that's definitely something that I've recognized in your writing that I find uh, unusual, uh, yes. kind of bucking the trend. Um, now, here's something that's uh, perhaps more widely agreed upon in your writing, but I'm curious about how you link it to your reading of Locke and the liberal tradition. So yeah. let's go to a couple of other writers. Uh, you uh, have spent quite a bit of time talking about Dostoevsky and Zolzhenitsyn in your writing, Re really beautifully. In fact, I commend all our readers that uh, I, I love your books, and I think people ought to read your books. Um, for those uh, who are political theorists or have a bend towards that, there's just so much material in there that's fantastic. For those who are more inclined to, you know, they're more comfortable with fiction, your uh, exposition on uh, imaginative literature is really fresh and, and very insightful. So I think a lot of... Um, 
folks would say, oh, yeah, yeah Zoltzenitsyn and Dostoevsky, we definitely need them. And, and uh, you know, uh, that beautiful phrase that Zoltzenitsyn has, you know, out from under the rubble, right? So the, the modern world is all in pieces, as you said, uh, David. And then Zoltzenitsyn finds finds a way out from under the rubble. He rediscovers God. He rediscovers um, good and evil in the human heart and, and it begins to kind of re- reorient his own life. Uh, but he's pretty tough on the West. He's pretty tough on American liberal society, you know, if you take the Harvard address. So I'm curious, I think our readers or our listeners would be as well. So, so how does David Walsh uh, link Zoltzenitsyn and John Locke? <laughs> so, you know, how is it? <laughs> oh, very it, good question. Yeah, in uh, the modern world. Uh, yeah. Uh, I must say, I began uh, with that more sort of um, conventional view that Locke was, or sorry, that Zoltzenitsyn was basically... Um, uh, an incorrigible critic of the West and of America. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, and he, and the famous Harvard address is a moment in which he, he brings all that to light. But um, you know, uh, even he moderated his views over the years. And as you as you read more of his uh, work. Not just that address. I mean, an address is a very short thing. Sure. Uh, you know, all you can do is hit a few, a few high points, and that's what people remember: uh, that the West is doomed to decline, yeah. etc. Um, but you know, when he actually has to grapple with uh, political issues in Russia, yeah. and especially when he's thinking through how Russia might have been able to avoid yeah. the revolution, what he singles out is. Uh, Essentially, a, a moderate reform liberal statesman like uh, Pyotr Stolypin. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has one of the longest chapters in The Red Wheel, mm-hmm. uh, August 1914, um, and, and, and after that. Um, that, um, uh, you know, uh, he basically uh, looks towards, uh, Sons Vincent basically looks towards America as really a. Um, a model for how a large society might be governed uh, from the bottom up, emphasizing not individual rights, but self-government beginning at the local level. When he, when he lived in America, one of the things he was most impressed about was the, um, uh, the town meetings in Vermont. Yeah. Uh, occasionally attended. And he could see, yes, this is a functioning, this is how a functioning uh, democracy would work. People would meet face to face, they would recognize uh, the legitimacy of, of one another's points of view, and they would work towards some sort of compromise or agreement. Yeah. You know, there's nothing more mysterious in politics than that. And that's what the liberal democratic regime is at its essence. Now, obviously, it can be misused. And, um, uh, and uh, you know, certainly there are spectacular examples of liberal democracies giving way to uh, extreme revolutionary movements and becoming totalitarian. Russia being one of them, sure. the Weimar Republic in Germany being another. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, 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 certainly those are uh, spectacular failures. And there's no guarantee that a liberal and democratic society will succeed. It's always up to the individuals who are alive and inhabited and are carrying the burden of it at any given time. Mm-hmm. And that's, that remains our situation. Yeah. There's no, there's no real answer to 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 the question of how can we ensure that freedom is is always going to be mm-hmm. exercised responsibly. Yeah, uh, after the. Uh 
um, after the end of the Soviet Union, uh, I think it was right after that, that Zoltanitsyn published that little monograph yeah. on what, what's Russia going to do now. And uh, yeah. he spoke yeah. in very much the terms you just used, that it's going to be, yeah. has to be very democratic and down to the local level. Uh, yeah. I remember he said that um, there was so much distrust under the Soviet regime, that the living by the lie had become so habitual that living by the truth, you know, man to man, woman to woman, individual to individual on the local level, that's got to be the, the basis for recovery. And it was a very, yeah. uh, to my eye, yeah. yeah, it's a great insight. And it's, a, you know, so in essence, uh, it turns out, I think, that um, Solzhenitsyn was a liberal constitutional Democrat with a small d. Yeah. Beginning at a local level and essentially thinking of the federalist uh, kind of, a federal kind of uh, solution. Uh, subsidiarity, local government, uh, town, town governments and so on. Uh, you know, so that, that, that uh, when, when you really think it through, um, you know, he, he, um, he, he really presents an example of self-government as a process that begins from the individual, the local, and all the way up then to the national. But that's a, that's a remote thing, uh, but the real beginning is always at the, the level of persons who meet and collaborate and cooperate and work with one another. And that's how everything successful socially and politically works. That's how political parties work. You know, that's how everything everything works. Mm-hmm. And we may live in, a, in an age of Twitter and social media, but uh, uh, nobody actually um, makes decisions or, get, or accomplishes anything in that way. Mm-hmm. And teaching doesn't occur that way either. That's why uh, we have to be there with students and uh, in person and with one another, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Thanks, everyone, for joining me for this episode of Sources. We have other great episodes coming soon, so keep the conversation going and bring your family and friends. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And while you're at it, please leave us a review. The producer of this podcast is Helen DeSell Zwerneman. For all of us at Kane Academy, thanks for listening to Sources.